1: My kids always say to me, Mom, this is such a great dish. Imagine if it had salt in it. (laughs) You know, there's no problem adding a bit of salt to your food. I just don't tend to much because a lot of the other ingredients like tamari and miso, they all have salt. So you're gonna get salt.
0: You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Hiesel here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard.
2: Today, Anna's sitting down with Nisha Melvani, the author of Practically Vegan. Anna, tell us about Nisha.
0: Nisha is so cool. She's the creator of the website and Instagram account Cooking for Peanuts. And her book really brings together a bunch of practical, affordable, and totally doable vegan recipes. We talked tempeh, we talked tofu, we talked about the advantages of owning a really good, dependable blender. And also some of the ways that her cooking was influenced by growing up in Jamaica.
2: Here's Anna and Nisha.
0: Nisha Melvani, welcome to The Taste Podcast. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Your new book is Practically Vegan. When you set out to write this book... I'm wondering if there was sort of like a gap in the whole canon of vegan cookbooks out there. There's so many awesome vegan cookbooks, but was there sort of like a gap that you were hoping to fill with this, or was there something you were trying to do with this book that you
1: didn't already see out there? So you're right, there are so many amazing vegan cookbooks um, out there, and at least the ones I've come across, they typically have breakfast, dessert, lunch, you know, a variety of different meals. And I just wanted to focus on dinner because that's the meal in my household we all come together for. And, you know, ask each other, how was your day? And it's sort of the most relaxed meal in our household. And I think a lot of people tend to make dinner, mostly that, you know, breakfast, you're in a rush lunch, you're out. So I feel it gave people an opportunity to say, okay, if I want to eat more vegan diet, I can just focus on dinners to begin with, you know, it's something accessible. And I hadn't really seen one like that. So I also felt it was more inclusive to people who aren't vegan, which is partly why it's called practically vegan. So One, the book is very practical, all the recipes, the techniques. But the second reason was that even if you're not fully vegan, but you want to be more vegan, it accepts all of that. And so, yeah, it gave people the opportunity to think, oh, I can handle dinner, a plant-based dinner. I'll go for that. Totally. And the foreword
0: by Jonathan Safran Foer sort of touches on that. The idea of sort of building a new routine And how daunting it can be if
1: you're not used to cooking vegan food on a daily basis. Exactly. And I had read his book, We Are the Weather, where he actually talks about, you know, start with one meal. You don't have to be perfect. It's not like an all or nothing approach. Actually, this is how this book came to be. It was Jonathan who told me to write the book and that if I wrote it, he would write the foreword because his kids actually follow me on Instagram and make these dishes. That's so cool. Yeah, so they'll tell my, you know, my daughter, oh, I made your mom's recipe today. So that's how practical they are. Like, you know, teenagers make them. So that's sort of how this whole project uh, started. That's amazing.
0: One of the things that you touch on in the introduction is your childhood growing up in Jamaica. Does that make its way into your cooking at all, the Jamaican influence? Because I think a lot of people think of Jamaican food, and they think of jerk chicken, beef patties. But of course, Jamaican food is so much bigger than that. And it's so much more than those two staples.
1: Rastafarianism is a very rich part of Jamaican culture. And I was born in Jamaica. I've lived, you know, I was grew up there my whole life, um, apart from boarding school in England. But They tend to follow a idle diet, and that word idle stems from the word vital. So how they eat is to have foods that increase your life energy, like not drain it. And how they perceive that is to eat plant foods. So when I discovered the whole idle food thing, I was like obsessed with it. Like, I felt so much better eating their food. It has some basis in Hinduism. And interestingly, you know, that I am Indian, so it sort of brought my two experiences together. And a lot of them don't add salt to their food, which means you, you know, you rely on spices and herbs to really bring out that flavor. And to me, that is just fundamental in the way I cook because... I don't tend to eat a lot of salt, which is why a lot of my recipes say add salt to taste. Um, but my pantry is just full of herbs and spices. And I use them over and over again in different recipes. So nothing is sitting there going bad in your pantry. You're going to be, you know, using it in everything you make in the book. It's There's a lot of overlap. So, um, you know, a big part of Jamaican food is they have so many different vegetables that are incredible. You know, there's yam and breadfruit and ackee and plantains, you know, callaloo, so many things that I grew up eating. And I just felt better eating those foods, which is more of the idle diet from Jamaica.
0: The salt part of the equation is so interesting because salt is like such a shortcut. I, I use it when I'm at my laziest, I think, in the kitchen, like some boiled macaroni with a sprinkle of salt just to make it taste like something. But I think once you challenge yourself to make something taste sort of stimulating and interesting without as much of the salt, that's sort of when things get interesting in
1: the kitchen. And you're so right. My kids always say to me, mom, this is such a great dish imagine if it had salt in it. (laughs) You know, we already like it. But imagine if you put because, you know, salt brings out the flavor for sure and brings the dish together. And, you know, there's no problem adding a bit of salt to your food. I just don't tend to much because a lot of the other ingredients like tamari and miso, they all have salt. So you're going to get salt, you know. And then when you're at the table, you can decide, well, how salty do I want it? And you add it to your own preference. Um, But it does challenge me to use all those herbs and spices and different ingredients to bring out the flavor. And, you know, I've got to make food palatable to teenagers. So I think that challenge has taught me so much. And actually, I was thinking recently how Every night I cook dinner generally and I have no plan. I go shopping once a week and I just buy a ton of fruits and vegetables. I always make sure I have a stock of condiments that I use and herbs, spices, aromatics, onion, ginger, garlic. And I feel like never short of ideas. Like I just look at everything, what's left. And from experience, which is what I try and, you know, encourage in the book, as you make more of my recipes you will naturally become like this, where you just see what is left and and you learn how to combine all those things. And you don't need a recipe at the end of all that, because you're so practiced in it, that you can kind of wing it and make delicious meals. And my kids always say, well, you just made that up. Yes. And not because I'm better than everyone else, but because I've done it so much using my kind of recipes.
0: The book gives so many awesome options for plant-based proteins. I'm curious to know what your take is on imitation meat products. Is this like a category of ingredients you've experimented with at all? Are
1: you interested in them? Having imitation meat products definitely is helpful for the environment. If someone is going to replace a meat dish with an imitation meat dish, that's definitely a positive for climate change, for uh, you know a lot of environmental factors, and I think there's a place for everything. I feel like it helps restaurants to have a vegan or vegetarian option. It's easily accessible for them, and they know that you know people like those, and they'll sell. I think you know this whole concept of there being a sometimes food and no food is like off limits. So I think of them as a sometimes food. Maybe we'll go to a restaurant and my kids will order like a Beyond Meat dish or, you know, and I think they shouldn't replace whole foods like beans and tofu, tempeh. I think uh, it's great sometimes, but don't eat it so often that they replace the natural whole foods that are available to us. On this topic,
0: your book makes a really strong case for soy curls, which I've always seen in the store. And I've never really known how to use them, like what they taste like. What do you like about soy curls? And what other sorts
1: of experiments have you done with them? So I'm very passionate about soy curls. (laughs) Um, My kids love soy curls. And when I discovered them, I was really happy. They are high in protein, fiber. They don't have sodium. You add it yourself. Uh, They have a lot of heart-healthy fats. And they're so easy to use. So literally, you just have to soak them for, you know, eight to ten minutes, drain them well, and season them. And, you know, you can air fry them, you can pan fry them, whatever, you know, it's easy to cook them and use them as a pizza topping, in a soup, in a pasta, um, in a stir fry, which is my kids' favorite, an Asian-inspired stir fry. And they really do taste like chicken. So um, the texture is amazing. I really like it. And the brand I buy typically is Butler, and it's non-GMO soy, no chemicals, no preservatives, So I feel like I'm giving my family a very healthy meat alternative that they like. So it's like a win-win. And these come in, they come sort of dehydrated, right? Like, so they're
0: shelf-stable too, which not all proteins are.
1: Right. Except what I recently discovered after some of mine went bad is you are actually supposed to refrigerate them. You don't need to keep them refrigerated, but it's best to refrigerate them if you want them to last longer.
0: Okay. So in the I keep them in my pantry in my apartment that gets to 90 degrees in the summer. For short-term use,
1: yes, but they used to I used to only find them in like packs of 6. <laughs> now they come in packs of 2 or 3, so that's, you know, you use them up more quickly. And so when I would buy the packs of 6, By the end of when I got to number six, it wasn't, like, the best. And then I read it and realized, oh, I could have just put these packs in the fridge um, if I wasn't going to use them within a month or so.
0: You also make a really good taste for tempeh. I will sort of admit that a lot of my associations with tempeh go back to, like, the dining hall in college when it was, like, the one vegetarian thing. Um, And you sort of describe in your intro thinking of tempeh as, like, one of the least palatable vegetarian proteins. So I'm curious to know, like, what sort of changed your mind with tempeh? Like, was there a revelatory moment where you tasted
1: a really good tempeh or that you cooked a really good tempeh? So one of the things I boast about is having three tempeh-loving girls (laughs) – Um, I think tempeh is, I have a love-hate relationship with it, unless it's cooked properly, um, like marinated well. And I I think, you know, it can be a little off-putting to a lot of people. I call it like a good first date food because out of all these, um, you know, out of beans and legumes and all those options, it's less gassy. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And um, because of the fermentation process, I think, this is what I found when cooking tempeh because I experimented a lot. I was determined to make tempeh taste good. And if you just steam it or boil it for five minutes, it sort of reduces that bitterness that's sometimes associated with tempeh. And then you want to have as big a surface area as possible when you're marinating it. So, you know, obviously the largest surface area would be to crumble it. So sometimes I just crumble it using my hands and then you know toss it in a bowl and marinate the crap out of it. Or you cut it into really thin triangles. So in my book I say, well, cut it into four rectangles. Now take those four rectangles and cut them into two or three more rectangles. So if your knife skills are good enough, I would go for the three versus the two because then the surface area is so much more that when you go and marinate it, it's just gonna soak up that marinade so much more. And then I think it's best either like crispy, you know, like tempeh bacon. So, you know, you pan fry or you can even air fry it for a healthier option. Or um, I use the crumbles in stews or soups or pasta sauces. And it's such a healthy way to add protein. And it's actually higher in protein than tofu and fiber and iron. So, yeah, once I discovered that way of cooking it, which takes a little more work, but it's worth it.
0: Have you experimented at all with making your own tempeh? Because I recently learned that there's sort of a whole corner of TikTok dedicated to people experimenting with tempeh, just making it with all kinds of legumes.
1: So um, when I was in culinary school, I went to the Natural Gourmet Institute, and we learned a lot of these like techniques, how to make tofu from scratch, how to make pasta from scratch, and so I don't remember that being one of the things, but that's probably something they could have added. When I left culinary school, a lot of these really impressive techniques that I' learned, I just dropped them because, you know, I'm a busy mom, so it's like I have to choose what um, to focus on. And if I focused on that, I would never get around to the actual making of the dinner, because, you know, there's laundry, picking them up from school, all those things. And so I think it's awesome. I will just purchase them from those people who spend time making them and perfecting that process. But it sounds fun. I just wouldn't have the time to really invest in it right now. Maybe when they're in college. <laughs> yeah, perfect time to yeah. get
0: really into tempeh making. You can start your own local tempeh business.
1: Perfect. And my eldest is off to college this year. so.
0: Oh, exciting.
1: <laughs> Let's talk about some of
0: the kitchen gear that can really make a vegan dish I know your Team Tofu Press. I have a lot of friends who are Team Tofu Press. Why should a home cook pick up one of these instead of just kind of doing the old-fashioned, like, squeezing between two plates with, like, a couple of cans of soup
1: weighing it down? So I think it depends on whether you're okay with bruised apples or not. Um, <laughs> I like both methods, honestly. It depends. On how i feel that day because i am a bit old-fashioned too so the advantages of these you know purchased tofu press versus the homemade is i use the tofu future maybe i don't know how exactly cool you name. It. yeah that tofu press which it allows you to just press your tofu like the night before or the morning of and go to work come back and then you know deal with your pressed tofu So that's really convenient. I don't imagine myself leaving it between two cutting boards and a heavy bowl on top while I go to work um, for sanitary and just, you know, convenience reasons. But also the tofu press I use is small, so it easily fits into your refrigerator. And then it has a compartment on the bottom where it just collects all that water and you just pour it out. So I think once you use it and you see how easy it is and literally cleaning it takes two minutes... um, You kind of start going in that direction. But I still do like the idea of the cutting boards and the bowl of fruit. So, is the press like just big enough to hold one
0: block of tofu? It's like just a little tiny rectangle, right? It's
1: just slightly bigger than a block of tofu. So, it's really easy to store too. Cool.
0: What about the power of a good blender? Because you talk in the book about what you can do with different types of blenders, why sometimes having a high-speed blender like Vitamix can be really helpful and powerful
1: with vegan cooking. So vegan cooking is a lot of blending. You uh, make a lot of nut-based sauces or dressings, and it's definitely really helpful to have um, a very good quality high-speed blender. I do own a Vitamix, but there are other options that aren't so expensive, that work perfectly well. And I think, you know, it just makes the end product better. It's more creamy and it's also convenient because you're not having to think the day before, oh, I have to soak those nuts. So, you know, if you haven't soaked them and you have a very good high-speed blender, it really doesn't matter. Even almonds will blend for you. So convenience, and I think it's just in the long run, if you really plan to stick to this kind of diet, it's gonna pay for itself. I
0: caved and bought a Vitamix during the pandemic, and I have to say, like, blending something like silk and tofu, which I've done in the past, and, like, it's so hard to get it perfectly, perfectly silky smooth, but having the right blender and just having it turn into this, like, beautiful, luxurious, soft creamy substance it's really satisfying it's really cool to see it in action
1: it's hard to go back right (laughs) yeah
0: totally and it cuts down on cashew soaking time there's a lot of there are a lot of cashews in your book
1: yes
0: (laughs) to add that creamy sort of like richness that you might normally get from a cheese or a cream
1: now you can if you don't have the most best quality high speed blender, you can do a quick soak of your cashews, which is just to boil them and turn off the water once it comes to a boil and let it sit for like 15 minutes. So it sort of speeds up that soaking process. Cool. Have you tried this with other nuts,
0: like sort of making something similar to a cashew cream? Or are cashews like really the go to?
1: No, I actually have a pimiento sauce in the cookbook where it's made out of almonds. And almonds are and even walnuts. I blend walnuts. Um, and actually walnuts are considered the healthiest nuts. So you don't there's you can try it out with seeds for, you know, many options. Really cool. It's fun to experiment. I always encourage people, like try your own way and see what happens, you know? Totally. We ask many of our podcast guests this question
0: What's a dream cookbook that you like to write that you haven't? So
1: um dream cookbook is definitely in my head, so I'm going to vault that one. <laughs> <laughs> but non-cookbook? Um, yeah, non-cookbook, too. How to face paint underwater, maybe? <laughs> wow. Okay.
0: <laughs> that was not what I was expecting. I love that. <laughs> Still working on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Nisha, Malvani, thank you so much for being on the
1: Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me.
2: Anna, we're back. Uh, we're doing this segment. Where we we've called three things in the past.
0: Three good things. Three tasty things. Tasty. We're, still, we're working on rival brand
2: tasty, it. taste tasty rival. Big softball games we have in Central Park with tasty.
0: Yeah, we should start that. <laughs> why why haven't we been doing that?
2: Bowling league, taste versus tasty. What do you think?
0: Absolutely.
2: Anna, my first. Shout out is actually two books. We've had this amazing run of, of grilling and smoking cookbooks over the years, and there's plenty of excellent ones out there. But I wanted to call out two. Uh, one is Bloodso's Barbecue Cookbook by Kevin Bloodso. Uh, Bloodso's is the popular Los Angeles barbecue restaurant in West Hollywood. And in this book, Kevin Bloodso writes about his upbringing in Compton, California, and I just I'm amazed by the way it's photographed by Eric Wolfinger. He's one of the two photographers and just the storytelling in it. It's an exceptional book. It's not just beef barbecue. I know beef is one of the specialties there, but it's pork barbecue. There's a bourbon pecan bread pudding that I have my eyes on. Oh, yeah. One of two books.
0: What are you going to grill from the book? Or is there anything you're going to like tackle barbecue wise?
2: There's a lamb uh, shoulder rub that looked really cool. Um, there's a lot of really detailed rub recipes in there. And, you know, the second book I'm, I'm calling out is Pat Martin's uh, first cookbook, Life of Fire. He wrote it with Nick uh, Faucho. And Pat Martin is somebody who uh, is a legend in in kind of competition barbecue. He's kind of considered the father of West Tennessee whole hog barbecue or not the father. There's obviously lots of fathers, but he's one of the more influential characters. And I've, I've had his barbecue in Nashville and in Atlanta and in, at the Big Apple barbecue. Pat Martin is a name of barbecue and his book is outstanding as well. Lushly photographed. Um, so those are two books that hit my desk. I really am looking forward to writing about them and maybe having Pat and Kevin on the podcast.
0: When it's this, like, icy and slushy out in New York, I just really wish I was, like, in some yard-eating
2: barbecue right now. Can't we just hope that one day we will be able to be in that yard and maybe have a drink in one hand and a plate of brisket in the other?
0: We will be there. We will be there. I can smell it.
2: What's your first of three things—
0: Okay, well, since you mentioned lamb shoulder, um, I cooked a recipe this past weekend that was so good and kind of unexpected. It's a Sola El weli recipe from Serious Eats, um, and it's for these tacos where you braise a lamb shoulder. And what you do is, like, you make a paste sort of in the blender of, like, fresh tomatillos, garlic, some dried smoky chilies. And some dates for, oh, like, a no, little no, bit of Oh, no, no, stop. Sweetness.
2: Nice. Dates? Yeah, and it just Great. turns into
0: this, like, acidic, sweet, smoky, spicy, just, like, you know, salsa that you rub all over the lamb shoulder. Close it in a Dutch oven and just put it in the oven for five hours. And then what comes out is just this... Like falling apart meat that's so good in tacos. It's a
2: super low temperature too, right? At five hours, I'm sure it's in. the Yeah, 200s, I think it's
0: like 325, 325 or something. Yeah.
2: I love date syrup. Actually, you're, you're reminding me of date cooking with date syrup is really cool. Really, yeah, really good it's a
0: great me. like all purpose. Well, not maybe not all purpose, but it's a great sort of subtle, earthy sweetener. It's
2: not over the top sweet. Um, I love it. It's great. Pomegranate molasses is nice, but it's a little too uh, acidic, bright you could say, for some preparations, I think.
0: Yeah, it could get overwhelming, overwhelming. in large quantities. Yeah. What's next on your list of three things?
2: Um, I got an email today from Dan Pashman, the host of The Sporkful, and he was acknowledging the one-year anniversary of, of his podcast, Inventing a Pasta Shape. I don't know if you, did you listen to that podcast.
0: I don't think I listened to it, but since that podcast came out, I've seen Dan Pashman's pasta shape all over. It's cascatelli
2: right cascatelli exactly and i have been sent both the full speed cascatelli and the gluten-free bonza version of cascatelli
0: i know you love your bonza
2: you know we're gonna get the bonza uh the bonza boys that the, the guys behind bonza on the taste podcast Nope, no money has changed hands. I love Bonza um, as its own thing. I, I think it's a great product, um, and I've certainly Instagrammed it. A and few the whole times. idea
0: is like it's made out of garbanzo beans, right? Yeah, That's chickpeas, where I the name. garbanzo. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. It's a chickpea-based uh, noodle, and the Cascatelli collab with Sporkful. Um, I cooked it last night, and I love it. it. I love the shape because it has, as a note on the podcast, there's a lot of, like, nubs and ribs to it. And it's, like, really has a pleasurable mouthfeel to it when you're eating it and when you're, like, cooking with it. It just it has so much going for it. And I made uh, Yasmin Khan's New York Times recipe a very simple a third of a cup of olives chopped with um, half a cup of olive oil. It's a lot of olive oil. Maybe it's a third of a cup of olive oil. But it's a basically an olive oil and olive and feta pasta. It's really simple and great. So Awesome. So I made that with a cascatelli. It was perfect. What, what do you got, Anna? What's your, what's your second?
0: Okay. My number two on the list is, um, as you know, I'm a big fan of tin fish. I eat a lot of tin fish. I've heard you're
2: into tin fish.
0: (laughs) I have so many tins in my home. But I tried a really cool tin the other day, which um, was—I'd never seen these before, but Fresh Direct sells tinned bocarones, which are, like, white anchovy fillets that have been marinated in vinegar, rather than sort of, like, you know, the typical anchovy preparation of curing and salt until they get, like, really concentrated so these vinegary anchovies were so good, and I I rarely see them in a tin. I don't know if maybe not many brands put them in tins, but these were from a brand called Eureka, which I really like, mm. and they were so delicious. Like just enough fillets in there to have, you know, with a big salad and some bread for dinner. I they love were that. really really good.
2: So a couple questions first. So this is the differentiation here: is it's in vinegar and not in oil.
0: Right. Yeah, and like when you think of like anchovies that are on a pizza, those have been packed in salt yeah. and aged in like big barrels full of salt before they enter the can full of oil. Right, right, so they right. go through this whole curing process. So that's why we think of anchovies as being so salty. Super salty, right. Yeah, totally.
2: And so these are a little more acidic. The other question is is how do you organize your tinned fish? I've always wondered I I I think I have an idea, but how do you keep them organized?
0: Thank you so much for asking. <laughs> so I, my Tin Fish collection has really, like, morphed over the years. It was, like, you know, a corner of a cabinet for a little while. It became a drawer at some point. And then <laughs> as I've been writing a book about Tin Fish, it sort of became, like, a bunch of cardboard boxes all over my apartment. And it just became unmanageable. So I bought, like, a little, like, metal tiered cart that's, like, kind of for storing pantry ingredients. And I just have it sort of organized by species. I also have a spreadsheet that keeps track of all of my inventory. So I know um, sort of like what I've tried, what I'm out of, what I have a lot of if I'm like trying to figure out what to give to a friend. Um, So yeah, if you have like more than A hundred cans of tin fish, I really recommend starting a spreadsheet. (laughs) I feel
2: like a spreadsheet plus a a car proprietary to you could be a great side hustle.
0: That's such a good idea. I'm going to work on selling that. I'm going to get that out the door. All right. What's next on your list?
2: So I went to finally on the pasta tip. I wanted to talk about Residora. I went to Residora. Have you been there? I can't remember if we talked about this.
0: No, I had reservations at Residora like March 2020, and oh, then no. they got canceled and all of New York restaurants closed.
2: So Residora, uh, to to summarize, is a restaurant on East 20th Street in New York City. It's a three-star New York Times restaurant. And Pete Wells loves it. It is um, peddling in the trade of Emilia Romagna stuffed pastas, I would say is the headline there. And I went, like, we walked in super late. Um, Dan, Dan Holzman, my, my buddy and co-author uh, and collaborator, went. And we had the most amazing stuffed pastas. It reminded me of Amelia Romagna, a place that I was able to visit a few years ago and write about in taste. And I have to call out the Batone de Cacciatore. I think I said that right. It's basically guinea hen, black truffles, and saba. Wow. So rich. But like every bite had the little bit of the saba, which is like a kind of like a lesser aged balsamic vinegar. Oh my god, it was good. So good! Amazing.
0: Did you do? They have like a pasta tasting menu, right?
2: I did not do the ninety dollar pasta tasting, which seems like a real bargain to be honest with what they were doing there. I love that restaurant. I feel like it's it's great if you can sit in the back. The front seems a little to like New York for me I'm like feeling like it's a little tight um so the back's a little better but I recommend walking in you can do it I feel like if you if you you could go to Gramercy Tavern across the street grab a drink if you're while you're waiting have a nice date night
0: yeah that's such a good tip
2: what's your final of the three tasty things
0: Three tasty things. Three, tasty three things. good three good things. We could yeah. just steal a really good Martha Stewart move three and call things. them good
2: things. Yeah. Imitation is the highest form of flattery, they say.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Okay, my third thing is actually a recipe on taste. I'll link to it in the program notes. It's Caroline Schiff's salted honey focaccia. I've made it so many times, mm. including like a week ago. And it's so good. It's from Her somewhat new cookbook called The Sweet Side of Sourdough.
2: Which you've written about. Great book.
0: Yes. I interviewed her for for our newsletter. And this recipe is just so good. You basically, you make a really simple, basic sourdough focaccia. And then when it's still hot, when it comes out of the oven, you brush it with honey and then sprinkle flaky salt on it. So the top just has like this beautiful shiny like honey gloss, but it's still salty and sour, and it hits all of those notes. So good!
2: It sounds amazing, and you've made it many times, and please make it next time. We yeah, I gotta bring
0: some into the office into the studio.
2: It. Well, thanks, Anna. Let's do another three things soon, okay?
0: We will. Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.